notes if you uh, were not here last week. Uh, and so the means of grace, uh, as I've come to define it, uh, is, is very simply uh, those, those divinely ordained practices that enables believers to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of, but also in their love for uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, one theologian says that the means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to, uh, to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. And these are the foremost means by which he communicates Christ and his benefits to believers. So he says, in his grace and in his wisdom, God has appointed or God has provided ways by which we can regularly have our faith in His promises fortified, and by faith the work uh, uh, by faith and the work of the Spirit, these common elements are used to do an uncommon work, namely the confirmation of our trust in Jesus and the strengthening of our wills to flee from sin and then rest in Christ alone. And as it relates to our message tonight, uh, one of these common elements that uh, is referred to here is, uh, is, is worship. Worship is something that the Lord uses to uh, draw us closer to himself uh, through the uh, ordination of, of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we'll be looking at worship as a means of grace tonight. And when I say this, I want to be clear in just simply stating that when I say worship, I don't mean like just singing, although singing cer- certainly is an aspect of, is something weird going on? Yep, something weird's happening. Do I need to try again? Is that good? That sounds better. Awesome. Okay, I'm just going to keep talking until you tell me not to. Cool. So anyway, uh, it's not just singing, although singing is certainly an aspect of, uh, of means of grace, uh, but, but there's, there's just a lot that kind of falls under this umbrella. And uh, I, I, have to, I have to admit that I have some bad news. Uh, your liturgy guides totally says Romans 12, and you're like, I don't, even, I don't even look at that. But it says Romans 12, and in typical fashion, I decided to make some changes uh, a little last minute, but that's okay. Uh, but if you're just like, man, you know, I you know, wanted to be Roman through Romans or whatever, then, hey, we're going to get there, you know? So uh, it's coming up, just not right now. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I want us to look at, at first at, at corporate worship and do an overview of some of the elements that um, that is kind of like uh, makes up a church service or, or some of what we do here in CBS, and then just touch base on, on why these things are significant, and then uh, we'll just slightly shift ever so, uh, ever so slightly to, to daily worship and, and look at what daily worship looks like for the believer, what that means, uh, how to do it, and, uh, and hopefully by now you found your place in Hebrews 10. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 19 uh, and stop at, at verse 25, but our primary focus will be Verses 22 through 25. So with that, we'll, we'll read. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. 
Uh, Father God, um, we uh, come to you in, in this moment uh, for, for the reasons that we just read, that uh, to, to help our hearts draw near to you, to, to, learn, uh, to learn about you, to, to, uh, to hold fast to our confession of, of faith and, and just have our, our, our faith in, in, in our convictions and in, in everything that we have just supremely rooted in, in who you are and who you are to us and what you've done for us through, uh, uh, through the cross. And so, uh, and so, so Father, right now we, we seek you and, and we pray to you just asking that you give us clear hearts and clear minds uh, and that we would just uh, see what you have for us. May we learn from you. May we rest in you. And would you just give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, first point for the night, corporate worship. And if you'll notice, uh, it's kind of cool that the header for the section is, is actually uh, called the, the full assurance of faith. And I, I think that's really perfect for where we're going because this is exactly like what the, the various elements of worship uh, do for us as believers, right? Like they are, they are actively working to, to give us and, and to build in us a full assurance of our faith in Christ. And, and, and it may be like, hey, this is great, but you keep saying like these elements of worship, what are they? Well, it's, it's, it's exactly what we do week in and week out every Sunday morning, uh, every Sunday night. It is singing and praying and reading and tithing and, and listening to testimonies and, and, and baptism and, and observing the Lord's Supper and uh, reading of the Word, teaching of the Word, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and for CBS, like it is confession of sin and meditation on the Word. Uh, and, and because you can literally preach entire sermons on, on every single one of these, uh, I'm just going to cover a few of them very, very generally. So, uh, so with that in mind, the second thing that I want us to look at as we start to, look, uh, as we start to walk through the text now is, is just simply the plurality in which the author is, is using to address the audience, right? So, so what I mean by this is, is verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, right? And our bodies washed with pure, uh, with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, and let, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, right? And so, so like through, through this whole section, there's this understanding that that what we're doing is meant to be done as, as a collective body, right? And so I call your attention to this because I think it's vitally important that as we are discussing the means of grace, right, like these, these things that serve to have our faith in, in the promises of God fortified and strengthened, uh, that, that these are not something that we do individually, right? Like these are not things that we just do by ourselves. And so like we know that as believers uh, that that we are encouraged and commanded time and time again to live in community, to, uh, to live in community, to meet corporately, to confess sins with one another, to exhort and encourage one another. Uh, why? Because we know that ultimately the, fel- the, flesh, is, uh, the flesh is strong and, and sin still runs rampant in our lives. And even though we are saved from sin, we're not yet saved from uh, actively engaging it. And, and so uh, we, we fall sometimes and we mess up sometimes. But uh, the point being is that it is, it's just is, is impossible to pursue holiness by ourselves. And so we'll see in a couple of weeks, even with, um, I don't know who's teaching it, but community as a means of grace. Uh, so community in and of itself is, is a form in which the, the Lord uses us to, 
to do exactly what, what I've been saying here with worship. But the point being, and especially for us tonight, is that our faith is encouraged and strengthened when believers gather together, right? And, and, and especially when we partake in the elements of worship. Uh, and I'll say this too, right? I, I, I think one of the best sermons I've ever heard Kevin teach uh, is, is, and certainly one of the most formative and, and informative for me, is, is from this passage, uh, every single Oaks Retreat, where he just talks about the significance and the importance of the local church. And it's actually on this passage, uh, but, but every time here he, he, he makes the point that for, for believers, uh, the reality of verses 22 through 24, the ability to draw near, the ability to hold fast our confession, and, and to consider how to stir up one another, is, is all made possible because of verse 25, meeting together, you know, and, and doing that habitually. So how does this play out practically? Well, let's think about it. Like, like the ability to meet together is what stirs our hearts and helps us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And so Ray Ortland says this about the elements of corporate worship. He says, the idea of the means of grace answers these questions. It says, uh, how do I, as a believer, access the grace of the Lord for my many needs? Where do I go? What do I do to connect with, with the real help that he gives sinners and sufferers here in this world? And, and at a practical level, how do I come to him for grace? End quote. And so, for instance, an example of this, like baptism, right? Like, how does baptism help us as believers to access the grace of the Lord for, for my many needs, for our many needs? Like, how does it help me to draw near uh, with a true heart and full assurance of faith? Or, or how does it help me to hold fast to my confession of faith? And, and I, I just, I honestly think that, that baptism is just so cool. I think it's one of the coolest things we do. Uh, there's a lot of cool things. But, but baptism, as, as many of us know, and, and I'll apologize to the, the Presbyterians in the room, but baptism signifies our union with Christ, right? Like Colossians 2 says, Now, having been buried with him uh, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So when believers are being baptized, like we are actively partaking in a physical representation of our spiritual rebirth, right? So like dead we came, having been buried with him in baptism and then raised with him to newness of life. And, and, and with that, we are it is, it is indicative and symbolic of being forgiven and renewed and regenerated uh, and, and really adopted into the new family of Christ uh, and, and, in a sense, uh, like resurrected with him. Uh, and, and the part that I think is, is even more fascinating and really even more humbling, and the thing that gives me chills about baptism is the fact that, that this isn't just a means of grace for the one that is being baptized, right? Like, like this is also a means of grace for those who are actively witnessing the baptism. And here's why. Because in baptism, the sign or the symbolism isn't just the water, right? Like in baptism, the, the, the additional thing is the act of being washed with water by someone else. Think about it. So like, like when we observe baptism, we see someone being washed clean by someone else, right? Like, and, and in this, like those of us watching are actively being reminded of our own baptism, and therefore able to experience where we were before Christ and where we are now through Christ and, and just sitting in and, and resting on and, and meditating on like his providence in our lives. And, and so like through, through just simply observing this means of grace, we're, we're able to uh, just experience the grace of God in, in, a, in a deeper and more powerful way um, because 
yeah, like we, we, we see time and time again that God is, is calling broken sinners to himself and, and he is actively keeping his promise in justifying and sanctifying and ultimately one day glorifying. And, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, and such were some of you, right? And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Man, like, praise the Lord. You know, and, 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 and even so, like, with, with this reminder taking place in a corporate setting, we who are witnessing this, this new believer come in, in obedience to, to be baptized, to engage in believer's baptism, those of us who are watching and witnessing this act of grace are now able to, to help hold that new believer accountable in, in honoring the commitment that they've made with the Lord. And I just think that's so special, right? Like, like we are a body, and, and, and we act and live as such. But, it, but it's not just baptism that serves to encourage the, the believer and, and, and ultimately foster love for the Lord. Like, consider also the Lord's Supper, right? And, and Brian says this every month right before, we, right before we take communion. He says, the bread and the wine are, are the signs of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And, and as we are consuming the elements physically, we are feeding on Christ spiritually. Rather, like we are being reminded of his sacrifice and the truth that that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And from the mouth of God came a Savior, right? And, and, and this Savior said, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And, and like, that's, that's, that's who we are reminded of. Like, that, that's, that's the person that we are reminded of when we are when we are partaking in communion, when we, are, when we are observing the Lord's Supper. And in taking communion together, like as a collective and unified body, uh, another theologian says, says, our hearts and our minds are not focused on the signs, but rather on what they signify, namely Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf. And so, worship is a means of grace because it catechizes the heart to remember and to be renewed to very significant and, and foundational truths in the Christian life. Right? Because like whether in song or in sacrament, we are forcing ourselves to truth time and time again. Like, like when we sing, he will hold me fast, we are remembering the character of Christ and combating anxiety and fear by confessing that when temptation tempts me to despair, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my life. His promises shall last. He will hold me fast. And that is exactly what worship does, right? It exalts Christ and it humbles the Christian and it reminds us that we are finite and that he is infinite, that he is sovereign and that he is good and that he is just and merciful and gracious and that we are not sovereign and we're not good and that we are in desperate need of his mercy and grace. And like, and like these are imperative truths for the believer. And, and uh, a book that Kevin references a lot that I think is is deeply impactful for me is uh, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith. He's awesome. Read it. But he says this. He says, if you think of worship as a bottom-up expressive endeavor, repetition will seem insincere and inauthentic. But when you see worship as an invitation to a top-down encounter in which God is refashioning your deepest habits, then repetition looks very different. It's how God rehabituates us. In a formational paradigm, repetition isn't insincere because you're not showing, you're submitting. Mm. 
man, I, I, yeah, that's just, yeah. I think that's, I think that's really powerful. Um, and, and, and I don't, I don't want to overemphasize the point, but like even in tithing, right? Like, like what does tithing symbolize? It symbolizes that, that uh, like out of our, out of our, out of our hard-earned uh, or, or your parents' hard-earned uh, finances, like our, our money is a sacrificial gift in which we are just saying like, hey, like, this, this thing, which is indicative of my time and energy and focus and attention, is, is, is all worth it in promoting the cause of Christ. And it is all worth it in expanding the kingdom of God. Right? Like, where our, treasures, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And this is what we're doing. We're showing where our treasure ultimately is and fashioning our hearts to be there with it. And, and to close on this point, uh, and, and there, again, like, there's a lot of stuff that, that could be said on, on just elements of, of corporate worship as a means of grace. But don't have time for that. Uh, so, so simply close on this point. The Heidelberg Catechism says, and I think Kevin and I said this last week, I don't know, but, he said, but it says, to downplay the importance of the means of grace is to de-supernaturalize our holy religion. So let us have a high view of the, sacrifice, or, uh, of the sacraments as confirming signs of God's work. Mm. And, and, and may they always be so. So with this, we're going to shift slightly to our second and actually our last point for the night. Uh, if you want to go ahead and be flipping to Romans 12. Come back to see it. Keeping my word. Didn't do anything too significant. But so uh, a few years ago, uh, John Piper wrote an article for Desiring God entitled uh, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. And uh, I think it was one of his more popular ones. It was an awesome article. It's like, ah, wow, that's cool. Uh, but anyway, in this article, he's essentially using what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, uh, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Uh, he's, he's using this verse, what Paul says here, to expand on the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, and, and he says that because what Paul writes in this verse is a biblical command, it is therefore sinful not to do everything to the glory of God. And so connecting this with his title, he says that a believer can be in sin if they are not drinking orange juice to the glory of God. And he isn't, he isn't saying this to, to be harsh or legalistic, but rather to just simply point to the fact that like everything that we do, everything that we do, all of our works, all of our good deeds, like apart from Christ, they are, mo- they are morally ruined. Like, like we have nothing good to offer. And, 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 and everything that we, that we do is just stained and tainted apart from the saving grace of God. And he states, this is sinful because, in other words, sin is not just a list of harmful things like, kill, uh, like killing or stealing. Like Sin is, is, is leaving God out of account in the ordinary affairs of your life. Sin is anything that you don't do to the glory of God. And thus leading to the question of, of how believers can drink orange juice to, to God's glory. And, and of course, like what, he, what he's doing here is just simply teaching us as believers, as Christians, like how we can make every moment holy. And he goes on to say that believers can drink orange juice to the glory of God because, and, and here he quotes Second uh, Timothy 4, which says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so he says, believers can drink orange juice to the glory of God because their drinking orange juice is made holy by the word of God, and by prayer. The word of God teaches us that the juice, and, and even our strength to drink it, is a free gift of God. The prayers are humble response of thanks from the heart. 
believing this truth and the word and offering thanks and prayer is one way that we can drink orange juice to the glory of God. Now, how does this connect to daily worship? Our second point, how does this connect? Well, for the Christian, and, and I'll expand on this in a, in, in a bit, but uh, for the Christian, worship, man, it, it, it presents us with just an, an incredible opportunity to bow before the cross of Christ and say, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you to be praised. And, and, and to do this not just in a corporate setting, not just in, in church, but in the most mundane moments of our lives, like drinking juice, like drinking orange juice. So this is, this, is, this is what daily worship should look like. And hopefully you found your place in Romans 12, starting in verse 1. And, and really, ideally, you know, we would, we would read the whole chapter and talk about the whole chapter. I don't want to keep you here until midnight, so uh, we'll just read a few verses. But starting in verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in verse four, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And and like I said, this this point should should really cover the the whole chapter. But the main focus that I want to emphasize here is is understanding how we can incorporate forms of worship into the daily rhythms of, of our lives. Like, as Christians, we know that our faith is not just the sum of what we do on Sunday, but it's also what we do Monday through Saturday, right? And, and it is deeply rooted in and characterized by daily obedience and praise to the Lord or the lack thereof, right? Uh, but, okay, so if you noticed, in verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And, and, and here we should, we should pause to consider just a, a, a few observations, right? Like, like, what's happening? Paul is making an appeal to his audience to do what? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How? By the mercies of God. Now, as a general rule, uh, Paul is very intentional with his writing, and he knows that for whoever he's writing to, the only means that he has for admonishing and correcting the church is a letter. So everything that he says is significant, and it's, and it's all connected in one way or another, and it has to be, right? Like, he has a letter. So in saying, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, do this, Paul is, 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 is appealing to us on the basis of what he's previously said, like what he's previously said in the first 11 chapters. And the basis of what he's previously said is almost exclusively rooted in and focused on the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, Romans 1, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived since the foundation of the world. By the mercies of God, Romans 3, his righteousness has been manifested apart from the law and instead through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And one more example, by the mercies of God, Romans 5, we know that those who are in Christ have been justified by faith and are now able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and are therefore able to rejoice in suffering. 
right? Like this is all the manifestation of God's glory, of, of God's mercy that, that he's referring to. And, and the list could go on and on, but specifically the mercies of God that Paul is most likely drawing on here is uh, what he says in the previous chapter, in, in, in chapter 11, just before he makes his appeal. So if you will, look, at me, look with me uh, in chapter 11, starting at verse 13. And, and here Paul is just speaking on how uh, through Christ, Gentiles have been grafted into the fold of God. Salvation is no longer just for the Jew, but it is now for the Gentile. We have been grafted in, in verse 13. Uh, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then I, as, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if in their rejection... Uh, for if in their rejection means the reconciliation of, of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And, and, and here, like, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. And that is true. Here's the thing. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And again, uh, focus here, verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted and will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Now, skip down a few verses to verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned uh, all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Again, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So like, these are the mercies that Paul is most immediately referring to in in chapter 12, in in, in verse 1. By the mercies of God, by, by his sending Christ to live for all and die for all, and, and, and the fact that no longer is the kingdom of God just for the Jew, but it is now for the Gentile. And, and by, by uh, Jesus' sacrificial death and by, uh, by his substitutionary atonement, like in providing, in providing like all of us, like all of us who place their faith in, in Christ, God has provided a way for his prized creation to, to now be spared from the wrath that, that we all rightly deserve. So by these mercies, we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual worship. And, and, and here, like, we also really need to be asking, like, like what does this mean, right? Like, it, like, is Paul actually asking us to sacrifice ourselves? Like, of, of, of course not. That wouldn't make any sense. Like, Jesus has already, already sacrificed himself. And, uh, but, but the answer is, is still in, in verse 1. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what Paul is getting at is, is not that God desires us to continue on making physical sacrifices 
uh, at which point you're like, dang, you know, I was kind of hoping for that resurrected body. You know, been asking Santa for a six pack for 12 years now. But uh, <laughs> like, mm, I'd overnight shift that thing. But uh, no, I'm, none of you are probably thinking that. I don't know why I said that. But, <laughs> but that's what I was thinking. But uh, instead, instead of what he's saying is that, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Instead, what he's saying is that because of God's kindness uh, being shown to us, uh, we should live sacrificially, right? Like not pleasing ourselves, but denying ourselves to show our gratitude. And, and, and so what he's talking about is, is our behavior. He, he's talking about our thoughts and our actions and the fact that, that all of this should be a sacrificial offering to the Lord. Right? Like our every breath ought to demonstrate thankfulness and our every thought ought to serve to fight against arrogance and apathy and spiritual indifference if we truly know and recognize what exactly it is that we're being saved from. And here's why spiritual uh, worship, as, it, as it's used here, and in Romans 12 is, is, uh, is, is so significant. In its Greek translation, spiritual worship literally means your reasonable service or your logical duties. So more or less, like presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice in spiritual worship ought to be the most logical thing that we do as followers of Christ because our lives are no longer ours. Right? Like the moment we profess our faith in Christ... Our bodies are not our own, nor are our lives. So we were bought with a price, and we are now expected to glorify God with our bodies and in our bodies. Why? Because when we are actively doing all things in forbearance of the Lord, like in remembering the work of Christ on the cross, then we are, in a way, reminding ourselves of the blood shed on our behalf, and in our good deeds, we are remembering His. So in essence... Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is our imitation of Christ. When we sacrifice, we're also reminding ourselves of his sacrifice. And we're also presenting the outside world with a small example of of what Christ did and what he's offering us. And this is exactly why Martin Luther uh, said that God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbors do. Right? Like, for the Christian, every moment is sacred. And we do all things to the glory of God because we are his, commi- his commission ambassadors. Right? And, and again, to reference James uh, Smith, he says, just as kings erect statues in, in foreign, uh, in, in distant conquered lands to, um, to declare their dominion over that area, and this is paraphrased, he says, so too are Christians appointed to declare the glory of God to all uh, and, and, and to be the reminder that, that all people are under the authority of an almighty God and that unless they have repented of their sins, they are in active rebellion against a sovereign king. That's heavy. You know? and, 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 and this is such a vitally important principle for, for us as believers. Like orchestrating our lives around this principle, around the theme of being a living sacrifice, is, is growing us in the knowledge of Christ and in our love for Christ because it forces us to study Christ. It forces us to know him. It forces us to remember his life. So we are reminded of our salvation and the mercy of God, and we are conveying truth to unbelievers in proclaiming that there is a king to whom we submit, just as Jesus did, but we're also allowing good works to tell of a good God. And this is, again, this is precisely why in 1 Corinthians, right after Paul gives us the command to do all things to the glory of God, 
that he beckons us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Like in the very next verse, he says that. So this is so, so important. And, and this is just on verse 1, so I need, to, I need to hurry up. But I wanted to sit there for a minute because, again, it, it's, it's important. So anyway, we, so we have this command from Paul. But how do we do this? Like, what does it look like to live in daily worship? Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? How do we live a life of praise? Uh, or, or, or how do we do all things to the glory of God? Be transformed. Renew your minds. And again, what exactly is he saying here? Because I feel like, I feel like this is one of those verses that we read it and, and just kind of take at face value and like, oh yeah, that, that's, you know, that makes sense. That's clear. You know, and, and therefore, like, oftentimes just fail to assign it, it it's, its proper consideration. And so I'll keep this, this point brief, but what I think Paul is, is attempting to do is, is something like, like, like hey, like, let, like, let all you do remind you of Jesus, right? Like, remember the significance of his death or remember the wonder of his creation or, or remember his goodness, remember his kindness, right? Like, let everything that you do reflect who Jesus was. And I think this is somewhat similar to what uh, the author of Hebrews writes in, in Hebrews 3, uh, and, and, and the book of Hebrews was written to people who uh, are struggling with their faith and, and uh, considering reverting, reverting back to Judaism and, and uh, falling back into the cultural norms of the time. And in chapter 3, just after talking about the sufficiency of Christ to meet sinners where they are and, and to care for them in their time of need uh, and, and, and how he relates to those who are suffering, verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of your confession. What he's saying is like, remembering him in all things is your path to perseverance. Right? So, so consider Jesus who is faithful to him, who appointed him, because he is your apostle and high priest. And what that means is that as apostle and as high priest, we have a word from God and we have a way to God. And now Paul is saying that just as Christ was faithful to the Father, so you be faithful to the Son. Right, like the expectation is that for born-again believers, our job is not to just keep doing what we were doing before we were, before we were converted, before we came to uh, faith in Christ, but rather the expectation is that we live our lives as joyful exiles in a foreign land. Like we are to live counterculturally, and we're, we're, we're supposed to stick out. Right? Like, like we're not supposed to look like everyone or live like everyone because the, fact, the reality of the fact is, is that we're not like everyone. And this transfer. This transformation is to take place through a faithful adherence to the Word of God. Like that's how we renew our minds. And that's how we discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Why? Because, because the moment we forget the glorious reality of grace, right? Or, or, or the moment we forget the mercies with which we have been shown, the, the moment that we forget the glory of God in, in all things is the moment that we forget the weight of sin. And so we must, and we must present our lives as a sacrifice and, and to do so through the renewing of our minds if we are to ever stand a chance at remembering what we have in Christ. Because here's the point. Like, like when we live sacrificially, we are remembering a Savior who lived more sacrificially than we ever can. So when Paul writes this exhortation, 
he's saying that those who have been born again spiritually are now to be renewed mentally. Meaning that, that this fact necessarily invites us to, to recognize a new identity. Right? Like, like we don't live as a condemned people anymore. Like that's not who we are, that's who we were. And so rather, like we are to live as a forgiven people, as a redeemed people, as, as, as a people that have been saved from the wrath of God by the one who wasn't and through the one who wasn't. Like that's what we have in Christ. So here's how we do this practically. Verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than he ought. Think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Meaning that God himself, through the Holy Spirit, grants each of us a, a, a measure of grace to do what he commands and to be faithful to what he expects from us. Like, like he gives us the grace to live holy and acceptable lives. And the next verse is, is where I'll kind of start to tie all of this into where we were in Hebrews. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members uh, one of another. So, guys, like, as, as we are considering the means of grace, one of the most important aspects here is seeing the benefits of the corporate body in helping us to receive this grace, even in the most uh, private and personal moments of our lives. Like, it, it's not just that we are expected to live sacrificially and selflessly by ourselves, but it's, it's that we're expected to live this way together. Because even when we're not meeting in, in the church, like, on a Sunday, we are still the church, right? Like, though many, one, we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And now what? Having gifts that, verse 6, Having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And here's where I would encourage you to, to go home tonight and, and just read and, and sit on, the, on, on this chapter. Right? Like, let us, let it, these gifts, let us use them to serve the lost. Right? Let us use them to serve one another. Let us use them to serve the kingdom. Why? Because these gifts, those separate in us, were all one in Christ. And they were perfect in Christ. And he demonstrated them perfectly. And he did so with us in mind, with me in mind, with, with you in mind. And now, through these gifts, we serve, we love, and we remember. So I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, so... If you've ever been to D.C., and, and most of you have, probably in, in eighth grade when everyone, literally everyone gets to, to go for, I don't know why, some kind of, I don't know why. But if you've ever been to D.C., uh, first thing that you'll notice that there's uh, a bunch of statues and memorials that have been erected and built for, um, for all these, you know, old dead people. And, and, and they serve to, to honor the, the contributions that, that these people have, have made to U.S., whether that's the politics, whether that's politically speaking, or civil rights, or constitutional rights, and, and, and whatever, like, and rightfully so, right? Like, like, they are very deserving of the honors that they've received. Um, but all these memorials do is just stand there. They stand there in commemoration of, of remembering someone who, who is now dead. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's it. Except for one, my favorite one. 
the Wilson Center. The Wilson Center was chartered by Congress a long time ago uh, to honor the life and legacy of President Woodrow Wilson, who gave his life and and was so passionate and and influential in international relations, and and namely international peace, like establishing the League of Nations. And so so Congress passed this law, and, and now instead of a statue, instead of a memorial, we have an organization. And, and the Wilson Center, it, it all acts as a living and breathing memorial that serves as, as the nation's and, and really like the world's uh, leading think tanks for foreign policy and international peace. Uh, so, so members of Congress use it, the president uses it, uh, cabinet secretaries, it, it, like it's a resource for very, very influential people. But everything, and here's where it ties in, Everything that they do at the Wilson Center is inspired by everything that he did, right? It's inspired by his life, by his legacy. And, and, and so too it is with us as believers, right? Like, we should be living, breathing memorials who exist to honor the life and legacy of Jesus Christ, who do everything, remembering everything, right? Like, we live doing everything under the inspiration of everything that, that Christ did for us on our behalf. And, and, and that's, how, that's, how, that's how this all connects. Like, whether it is baptism or whether it is drinking orange juice, right? Like, like we can have every moment holy if we are actively remembering, remembering the sacrifice of Christ and, and, and not, just, not just his sacrifice. Like, he didn't just die on a cross, right? But he was... He was compassionate, and he was kind, and he was gracious, right? And so, like, we don't have to, we don't have to see this as, as an opportunity to take the hill and, and, and end, you know, world hunger, but, like, use this as a time to, to show compassion. Like, call your mom, you know? Like, like, Jesus was compassionate in that way, you know? Uh, um, do just, yeah, simple, simple tasks for the glory of God. That's where I'll close.